Welcome to the O'Reilly Design Podcast. I'm your host, Mary Tressler. This week, I sit down with Jonathan Chariot, Senior Interaction Designer at Intuit. We talk about the ethics of design, dark patterns, and why inclusion is good for both customers and the business. Enjoy this episode. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it's a pleasure. Nice to talk to you again. It's been a while. So um, could you talk a little bit about your journey into the field of design? And essentially, how did you arrive at where you are now? Well, I initially, like many designers, started out not into like design. I first started out actually in animation. Uh, I really liked uh, being able to be creative and things like that. So that was, and I really enjoyed animation. So I started going down that path and I quickly realized that that's not something that I want to do. It's very meticulous and it's not about like these big ideas and things like that and very little analytical thinking. So what I ended up doing was making a Venn diagram because uh, I was like many, many uh, college students, like kind of lost. Um, so I made a Venn diagram, things that I'm good at, uh, things that I like to do, and then things that have a good uh, career, you know, path. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I took kind of all those things together, you know, UI designer was like right in the middle of that. Um, and then so from that, I, I went to study that in, in, in college. And then from that, it kind of, you know, the more um, general practice of UX design, sort of more uh, encompassing of, of other practices. And um, I've, I've really enjoyed the work. I am so happy I picked that career just because I love the fact that it involves people. It's creative. It's also analytical. It involves both research and, uh, you know, design thinking. It's such an um, engaging um, career. Awesome. So what are you doing now? So right now, I'm a senior interaction designer with Intuit. Um, uh, before that, I was at a small startup, a healthcare startup uh, for physical therapy, you know, helping grow that company. And uh, before that, at a file sharing service called YouSendIt. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've done everything from, uh, you know, I've worked on books, actually, um, as an as a illustrator. Um, and I've also worked um, as an animator for a short time. Oh, excellent. and a comic artist actually. Oh, very, <laughs> for a very short time. Very cool. Very cool. So your your ha- your hands are in many many different kinds of things. So uh, let's talk about your medium post. So you wrote this post uh, probably what two years ago, maybe even three. Yeah. That gained a lot of traction and a lot of attention, and I think it was titled "How Bad UX Killed Jenny," if I have it correctly. Um, yeah. Tell me about why you wrote this um, this piece on Medium and what surprised you about the reactions you received to it? Yeah, it, um, it, it's a story that was shared with me. And I guess I, I shouldn't have been surprised at the reaction to it because that was my reaction too. Uh, well, you know, the, the story goes that the initial story came up when um, we were talking about how technology is good, you know, like the, the benefits of technology and things like that. And I was talking to a nurse who was saying that this was kind of saying the opposite, that's going to be a hindrance in the, um, you know, within nursing. And and this was their example that there was a young cancer patient who, you know, was doing well, um, had some cancer come back. So they came back for another dose of of their medication. And the cancer, the cancer medication is really toxic. So it requires, uh, I think, like 48 hours of hydration right after the, the administration. And so in hospitals, they have this charting software that more and more is taking up so much of the nurse's time, that they're less bedside time and more and more uh, just in front of the computer, writing notes about what they did and making orders and things like that. 
And the software can be really um, confusing and really um, terrible and uh, for many other reasons, which we won't get into. But what happened was that the nurses that were taking care of her were so distracted with the software and getting the orders right and all this stuff that they, they missed the important fact that she needed that hydration. And so um, with that lapse, the patient, which we just dubbed Jenny because the, the patient's name isn't known, she died. And just hearing that, the fact that, you know, here is technology and I, the way uh, as you know, many people who get into technology, we love the the um, the idea of all the possibilities that uh, that we can do with technology. As a designer, it's like our literally our job to be optimistic about technology and think of all the ways it could please and delight our users. But here it is doing the exact opposite. It's harming people. And I don't know, it just really bothered me as, as uh, somebody who, you know, again, is in technology and as a designer and someone who kind of believes in uh, all those wonderful possibilities that why why is it doing the exact opposite? Can't we do better? Like, don't we have the technology to pr- uh, actually start part- uh, participating in preventing errors and things like that rather than, you know, causing them? And um, so I, I, I just wrote the story out and uh, as a as a interesting eye opening thing for me and also because I couldn't get it off of my mind. And uh, of course, a lot of people um, came back and a lot, a lot of people shared it and, you know, both designers, uh, people from the medical industry, people working on technologies like those charting softwares. And um, they had a lot to say and there was a lot of passion behind that. And that's, uh, that's what really got me into writing the book, um, Tragic Design, um, was from sparked from this is like, wow, what are the other ways that design is, uh, is lacking and harming us? So but where's bad design causing harm in our lives? And what can we do about that? Awesome. So tell me more about what readers should expect to take away from the book. Yeah, my, my co- co-author and I, uh, my co-author Cynthia and I, we're really passionate about what designers can do. Like I said, we're very optimistic. So this book is not like this you know, list of negative things. It's really supposed to be an eye-opener for both designers, engineers, and everyone who participates in making uh, things in technology and, and elsewhere too, um, to really open their eyes on, in how their work affects others and what uh, and how we can avoid harm. Uh, so we also go through really basic uh, understand and fundamental understanding of the design process. So if you have good design and good design processes, you're going to create a design that avoids harm and is inclusive and uh, has a net positive rather than negative. So what are some of the ways in which designers can be more thoughtful and responsible? Um, It's probably cliche at this point, but really focusing in on user-centered design, which really means talking to users, getting in front of them and and speaking with them directly. Uh, I think analytics have their place, but nothing really beats that qualitative research and there's really a myth out there that it's a really expensive thing to do. It takes, you have to have be at a big company and what have you, but you can get in front of people no matter what. You can go visit people who are part of your target market, get them up on a phone call, especially nowadays, you can get them up on Skype or, or what have you, Google Hangouts and, and get, get, get talking to users and, um, and understanding them. And it's always eye opener um, when you do that. And I think that's probably the single most important thing, but also, um, I don't want to like sound like I'm I'm just uh, pushing the book, but really, um, all the things that we outline in the book really gives you a better perspective of all the different ways in which you can impact users in a negative way. It really makes you more thoughtful and responsible. So, for example, um, you know, dark patterns, which have really come to light in the in the design community, and these are patterns which are 
you know, the psychological tricks to, to trick users into doing things that they wouldn't want to do. For example, if you've ever tried to cancel your Comcast account, um, <laughs> it's much easier to sign up for one than it is to cancel. And canceling, even if you know exactly what you're doing and exactly what to say, it's going to take you at least an hour and maybe four hours. Um, it's, a, it's a really big, you know, big deal. And uh, they call that a roach motel. So a roach motel is like, it's easy to get in and you get stuck in the goop and you can't get out. <laughs> Um, and there's a lot of things like that. A lot of designers that I've talked to, you know, if you if you bring up those, I think that's like one of the most the easiest ways to to explain um, this this fact because it's very it's it's part of every designer's you know problem every single day is you know they they've probably encountered at least one of these at work where they're like okay what if we you know they get it from business or maybe you know it even comes from themselves or marketing but they're really trying to push uh, to trick users and try and, and harm them in that way so it's everything not just from you know the example of jenny where the harm involved death but you know there's a lot of other ways that uh we can harm users and like for example that's one way um and of course you know there's in- inclusion um injustice things like that accessibility issues and we cover all those different aspects and I feel like once you have that bigger picture, um, you start to see your designs in a different light. That's awesome. That's awesome. I'm super psyched to see this come out. So um, so let's talk about one of the the stories in your book, which kind of struck me, which is the story of the Ford Pinto's engine design, which I thought was actually kind of hilarious when I first saw the picture of the the old car. Um, but can you can you share the story with listeners who have have not seen the early release of your book yet? Yeah, sure. It's um, it's not necessarily a, a design problem. You know, this was much more of an engineering problem. But the reason we chose to put this story in was um, the thinking behind the decision. Um, so first, let me explain about the Ford Pinto. Unless, uh, if for some reason you don't know, it's it's a very <laughs> notorious car. Uh, so this was the 60s, um, and they uh, were uh, trying to make a car that was very cheap, very light, and um, the the market was very um, competitive. And again, I, the reason that we chose this story is it's there's so many facets that apply directly to to uh, designers' everyday work. So um, try and try and empathize with the business as well. So even just an extra, you know, twenty five dollars per car. And, and the cars cost two thousand at that time, so just FYI. So anyway, uh, charge an extra twenty five dollars per car could price you out of the market. Um, so, so the the sensitivity on price was really big. And one thing that they were trying to do was make this really big uh, trunk for the car. But what that meant was they had to move the gas tank below the uh, underneath the car. And what what that ended up doing was even at um, rear-ended again, when you got rear-ended, uh, even at speeds as low as like. 20 to 30 miles per hour, the car would crumple, the, the gas would spill out. And in many cases, of course, like, you know, in a, in a car accident, there's going to be sparks, right? So um, a lot of cases, there was sparks, and, and then, you know, you have all this gas, and there would be flames, uh, the car would erupt in flames. And to make matters worse, um, if, you know, at slightly higher speeds, the doors would jam. And so you have this terrible, terrible situation where people are locked inside, and the car explodes very easily, you know, 20, 30 miles per hour. It's like a, a very simple rear-ended accident. So the engineers knew this, 
and uh, and they brought they brought this issue up, and they even came up with a solution of adding you know some some rubber bumpers at the back that would really reduce this the impact of this issue. And but the the price of it was a little too much. I think it was like an extra you know twenty five bucks around there. So the business did a calculation, and the calculation was uh, was this: they they had a price of the vehicles. Uh, the extra price of this product, uh, the, you know, this little bumper, uh, extra bumper, and then the price of people's lives, which was actually given to them by the the traffic uh, administration. And I mean, it's it's kind of it's pretty sobering to know that there's a there's a price for, for, right. our, for our heads, you know. Um, but you know, this was this was a calculation that wasn't necessarily only for you know Ford, but this is what they did, uh, and they calculated what they what they would cost to add all this to all these cars, and then they added uh, and they compared that to okay, there's going to be about we estimate there's going to be about 180 deaths and 180 serious burns, and what would it cost to pay you know for those for those deaths and burns uh, for being sued and whatnot, and. Through that calculation, they came up with, oh, it's cheaper to not add this safety feature um, to the cars. And I just want to pause there for a second. I, was, I feel like, I don't know about you, is your is your skin like crawling right now? Right, <laughs> right. It's disgusting. Yeah, standing up on end. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's it's pretty it's pretty crazy thing to think about that. Like, oh, they're they're okay with that. But, you know, in the spirit of empathy, I really, I, I really went deep on that. And um, we looked at, uh, you know, where this came from. And it really came from some thinking from uh, a really uh, prominent uh, economist at the time. You know, okay, and he was actually uh, in one of his lectures at a college. He was asked this by one of the students: this exact question of, okay, this Ford Pinto, this calculation happened, and this is like based off of your formulas. What do you what do you say to that? So it was really cool to actually hear it from the horse's mouth. And he what he was saying was, okay, you have to admit that. Uh, a human life doesn't have infinite value because, you know, everyone would starve just trying to like, you know, pay for that thing. So it's like, okay, we'll give that too, right? We'll give, we'll give him that. Um, and so the, the fact of the matter is, are the, the numbers that, he, that, that Ford used correct? And, I, and that was his argument to the, to, the, to the student. And I think my argument to that is it, it's, a, it's such a dangerous way to think because, um, because of that, because the numbers are so slippery, and it's so easy to lull yourself into thinking that you're doing the right thing just because the numbers are there. But what really, when you have a set of ethical values that you aren't willing to to move against, to to, to stretch or to or to break, then you're willing to challenge yourself to think of better solutions. And you're willing to challenge the situation and prod and proke and, and, and figure out, okay, where are the, where can these numbers move? Where can these numbers change? How can we, how can we do something that's going to match our ethical values? And just to, um, to reiterate that once they did, you know, once they did release the car and, and the, there was actually worse, worse amount of deaths and the, the number, the cost of the, the lawsuits were even higher. And the CEO even said that almost it was a, it was a situation that almost bankrupt Ford. So Ford might not even be around today if this had been even a little bit worse. And um, so, of course, they scrambled to fix it. And the engineers within a, f- a few extra weeks came up with a much cheaper solution that fixed the car. So if they had a value system in place that they listened to their engineers and they said, you know, this is a big problem. We were thinking, so they said, okay, that's too much. Can you do better? You know, can you do better? Like we, we, we won't release this car unless we can do this in a, in a safe way, um, in a relatively safe way. 
then, you know, these engineers had the possibility of pushing a little bit harder and figuring out a solution that would have been both cheaper and saved lives. And I think that's that's the most important thing is because you're at the end of the day, your business has to make money. But if your business also doesn't have these ethical values in place, if you as a designer don't have ethical values in place, then these justifications, these calculations, which are somewhat valid in their own right, are are lull you into thinking that it's it's okay to to let go of some of your ethical, the things that you hold dear at, in your ethical standards. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is just the craziest story ever. Um, <laughs> it really is. I mean, the thing, yeah. the bottom line is, you know, it's, it's talking about, it's to the extreme of talking about business goals versus like personal value systems. And so I guess, you know, one of the other questions I have for you, and maybe this is an impossible question to ask, but I'll ask it anyway, is, you know, what advice do you have for folks, for designers in particular, who may be in a large company and uh, beyond resigning, like what, what can they do to impact um, the way in which the organizations um, treat customers? Um you know, because I, I've often heard people say, well, you know, I work for a company that's all about getting as, you know, many eyeballs on the app that we develop, whether that's good for the customer or not. And so, you know, I feel as though at some point there there are designers out there who struggle with maintaining a balance between their personal value system and business goals. What do you think of yeah. that? Yeah, I, I've heard that a lot from young designers, especially, but uh, even even more so people who've been around the block <laughs> for, for a while and they've been worn down. I, I think even more so veteran designers have, have come to me and said that it's, it's a lot harder, you know, than just, um, you know, bringing up the issue. And to that, I'd say, I, I really think the solution is speaking up and being difficult and really holding your own. So for example, in, in the past, I worked at a company where, you know, they wanted the, the VP of, of marketing really wanted to introduce this dark pattern of there's a trial price at the end of the trial will automatically charge you, which we don't, we don't say. And also we're going to be charging you not the monthly fee, which we're showing you, but the, for a full year. So, um, you know, I fought against that, but it went through anyway. And, you know, I still don't feel very good about it. So, um, I knew that this, uh, this, um, this this VP really he spoke in, in in numbers you know so I went to go find gather some data so I went and talked to my friends in you know customer care uh, talked to them and they're you know they're having all this trouble so okay why is that I go oh, we're having such an influx of you know cancellations and things like that I'm like oh that's interesting so can you quantify that and and so they gave me some data about okay here's how many extra calls which means we have to hire this many extra people in the future if this continues and uh, cancellations there's this there's this much fees related to cancellations as far as credit card transactions go. Uh, I was like, okay, that's great. I'll put that in my arsenal. And then also talking to the customer care team, getting um, the, the customer satisfaction values that are dropping, uh, going online, getting some you know, qualitative you know, quotes from Twitter and elsewhere, um, and brought that to him. And you can see his eyes light up. He said, okay, wow, yeah, you're right. This is interesting. And also talking to the, the, um, the metrics, uh, the analytics team of saying, okay, yeah, we had initial spike of uh of income yes pat everyone on the back but now it's it's starting to decline again and so um you could you brought all that to him and say okay listen like bad design uh is causing real and long harm to our users like the actual cost is hidden it's a hidden cost and oftentimes dark patterns and and unharmful things really have a, a hidden cost so we think you know like for example in the pinto example there's this hidden cost of like you know, people didn't trust Fords for a long time after that. 
Um, it almost, you know, broke the, the, the company. It was much more expensive, things like that. And, and in this example, you know, uh, yes, the initial um, amount of income came up, but it was, it was hidden. There was actually like cancellations, the brand was getting hurt and things like that. So it really just was involved of, you know, one, trying to figure out what it took to uh, change that person's mind. But in other times, you know, when there's no data, it's just a matter of being vocal and being consistent and saying, hey, these are my ethical values and um, just making a fuss over and over again, you know, and, and you'll be surprised how, how often uh, being consistently and making a fuss works. <laughs> uh, it's been proven over and over again, right? Like all the wonderful you know, protests and things that have gone is just, you know, being consistent and, uh, and, and being vocal. So, um, you know, if you're at your company, and there's things that you disagree with you, first of all, you have to decide, you know, on what scale do you disagree with it? Is it something that's in your ethical gray area? Is it past the red line for you? This is something that I think each designer has to really decide for themselves. And, and a lot of times, you don't think about it. And that's another aspect of the book that we, we challenge designers at the end is, okay, um, this is something that you need to deeply think about where where are your ethical values? Because a lot of times, you know, we feel uncomfortable, we do it anyway, because we're not we're unsure how we feel about it. And then we regret that later on. So um, that's another really important aspect is deciding what what's gray area for you that you're going to really push really hard back on. And then what's just a red line um, subject for you. And, and another example is, um, you know, for example, right when I joined into it, I, I sent out an email to the, the co-founder and the CEO, Brad Smith, and um, they both replied and they said, yes, I, I just asked them, hey, can I talk to you about, you know, um, design and eth ethical design? And they said, yes. <laughs> so, um, you know, this is a, this is like, a you know, tens of thousands of people company. And um, all it took was sending out an email and just asking. And the same thing with my previous companies, too. Like I worked at a 300 person startup and uh, just emailed the CEO. And he, uh, he, he had been um, at the company for two days. He was a new CEO. <laughs> and, you know, he was willing to meet as well. So uh, and of course, uh, many of the other managers and stuff that I've worked with have been more than willing to, to have an open ear. And uh, I think once once people know that someone disagrees with that particular thing, like if they if you say you guys, I don't think this is ethical or, you know, I don't I don't think this is to our, our brand or I don't you know, whatever, what have you. Once that's been vocalized, people are much more like and they also you know hear it more often. They're much more willing to start backing away from those practices. And you'd be surprised. Interesting. That's awesome. I love the advice of just speaking up and, and being consistent. Um that's great. So you in the book, you also talk about and you mentioned it earlier, designing for inclusion. Um, mm -hmm. I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about um, about inclusion, what you mean by it. And if you have some examples of people or products or companies that are are doing doing it well. Yeah, inclusion is, is such an important uh, topic, because again, like like uh, dark patterns, it's another area in which every single designer is going to have to deal with this um, in their work. You know, we might not all have a life or death situation at the end of our product, on the other end of our product, but we will all have dark patterns and inclusion to deal with. So inclusion is also much more, I don't want to say complex, but there's it's a much wider area than a lot of people think when they think inclusion. Because, you know, one thing that we're, we have a lot of work to do on is inclusion with as far as um, equality of um, you know, women and people of color and, and things like that and gender. Um, and, and so... I'll, just to, an example on that is, you know, what, what, what images do you use on your marketing site? 
is it all a bunch of, you know, men in meetings and pointing to, to data and things like that? Or is it, you know, a bunch of like bro jokes and stuff on your on your side? And, and by, by doing that, you start alienating, oh, wow, this, I guess this isn't for me, you know, people who aren't that particular way, right? Or mm-hmm. maybe it's a bunch of, uh, you know, young people having the time of their lives everywhere. And, and maybe by that, you start excluding, you know, older people. So that's another thing to think about. And, you know, there's also, in, in, on that note, uh, one, one um, aspect of inclusion that people sometimes don't think about is the exclusion of, you know, older adults, people who have um, lower eyesight. I mean, they're not blind. I mean, they're not totally disabled, just people who are older, <laughs> um, you know, and there's a lot of them around and there are people that we want to include in our products. You know, for example, I, my in-laws is a great example. They, I tried so hard, you know, they, they wanted to, you know, share pictures. They wanted to talk to their family back in Iran and things like that. And they had all these desires. Uh, my, my father-in-law loves to learn and, you know, it was really hard for him to get on YouTube and like watch all these amazing science videos. So what I did is I said, I bought them a new Windows XP, brand new Metro UI. And I trained him on it for uh, about a full day and a half. And he and he took he's a very smart guy. He used to be a pilot, he used to have a, you know, huge business and things like that. So he's a smart guy. And he was writing down every single step. <laughs> and it's kind of crazy. You don't realize how many steps involves turning on your computer <laughs> until you look over <laughs> and before you start saying anything, he already has like five things lined up. And so, you know, we did this day and a half training and I came back the next week and he just was exhausted. He just like felt so like, you know, bad about himself and felt very uh, confused. And so um, we ended up selling that computer off and we bought them, you know, just uh, two iPhones. And this was, this was way back in the day, especially with the um, skeuomorphic design. Mm-hmm. And I actually didn't have time to train them. I just, I set it up with, I just set it up so that it could turn on and they could down, I downloaded a few apps for them. And then I left and I came back two weeks later and visited with them and they were using it. They were, he was like on YouTube, you know, watching videos with subtitles and all those wonderful things. And I was like, this is like amazing. And like, just, they were, you know, cause it had touch uh, and it just, it made sense. A lot of the things that pinch to zoom and all that. And that's when I realized that, wow, like if we just design with inclusion in mind, um, there's so many wonderful things that we can do. You know, the, the size of your type, the, the contrast, you know, basic things like that can include a lot more people and excluding those, uh, and not thinking about those things can all of a sudden exclude a huge portion of your market that might want to engage with your product. Mm, absolutely. That's interesting. And, and yeah, there's, there's so many other, you know, areas of inclusion that we could cover, but that's, that's sort of the, the gist of it is, you know, there's, there's a lot of these, these uh, ways that we can exclude people. You know, of course, ac- accessibility is another big one is, okay, are you, are you adding some basic information about the images and text on your site? You know, are you tagging them well? It's not, it's not like a crazy ask. It's not a huge issue. But if you've ever seen a video of someone using a screen reader, especially, um, some of the the ones that are very prominent though on windows mm-hmm. they it's a nightmare for a lot of these people these websites because they have to read out everything on the page um if it's not properly tagged you know if the navigation's not properly tagged they'll just start from top to bottom and and then it's all this, this, you know, it's this inundation of audio and they have to strain to listen and see, okay, there's that one link I was looking for, um, you know, the agenda or whatever, and then they'll click on that. So these, all these things are a way for us to make the the bridge. I feel like designers were really tasked with making the bridge into our technology as wide as possible, you know, because you, you might be able to get your very small target market in, but there's can be a huge swath of people that you're forgetting just because you're designing maybe for yourself. That's so true. So true. Great observation. 
So let me ask you this. What advice do you have for designers who are just coming into the field? I think, again, I, for both designers who are just coming into the field, but even some veteran designers, really take stock of, you know, your 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 standard of ethics. You know, read through some of the examples or just, you know, um, you know, search on Medium for, for these type of things. There's a lot of stories out there. And decide for yourself, what are the things that I'm okay with? And what are the things that are a red line for me? And what are the things that are a gray area for me? And what am I going to do about those? And make, make a plan. And I think for young designers, especially, it's, it's, it's something that you want to know beforehand. Because like I said, when you're in the moment, you're not going to have as clear thought and you're going to be kind of confused about what you want to do about it. And as a young designer, even more so, you don't, ha- you don't always have the confidence to push back. But I want to encourage you to do so. I mean, I think that's what you're getting paid for. So if you're at a job, you know, both paid and unpaid in the beginning, really, it's your job to to stand up for your users as a designer. And that's why I, I really think designers have a unique place in all this. I mean, of course, engineers, uh, product managers, uh, CEOs, everyone, we're all responsible for this. And I think they'll all have something to, to learn from from the book. But designers especially are in a unique place in the process where it's literally our job to uh, understand and advocate for the user. I mean, I, I think it's everyone's job at the company, but oftentimes it's uh, the responsibility of the of the designer to make sure that that happens. And um, and so, yeah, f- for young designers, make sure you have your standard in place and that you're willing and capable of pushing back on that and being vocal. Mm-hmm. Excellent, excellent. And so beyond your own work, are there people or projects that, um, you're paying special attention to these days. Yeah, there's one. There's one project in particular that I always love because it's a single designer who kind of took it upon themselves to improve something you know that was harming people. And we've, I think, we've all been a part of this too. Um, have you ever, you know, parked somewhere and you you're you have time, you read the sign, you think you understand the parking <laughs> sign, right? You have money in your wallet to pay. But you said, okay, it looks like I don't need to pay or it looks like it's okay to park here right now, right? And then you go and you come back into your horror, either you have a ticket, you've been towed or what have you. And it's, it's just like a, such a terrible feeling. It's, it's injustice really, right? Because you were someone who was willing to obey the law and the rules. You, it was just a lack of uh, a failure of communication to you on their part of what the rules even were. And then all of a sudden you're paying the consequences for that. So um, there's this designer, uh, Nikki, and I'm, I'm going to try and pronounce her last name, Sai Lianteng, um, who she calls herself a gorilla parking sign design, <laughs> redesigner. <laughs> um, so she, she found this, you know, really confusing sign and decided she would just make her own. And so she redesigned a much le- more legible, um, parking schedule, she called it. And she had, you know, the days of the week and then the times, and then, you know, the times you're not supposed to park were out in red. She iterated with that. She got some feedback from people. She actually just hung it up outside on, in the in the in the um, in the wild and had a little pen to for people to leave feedback. And some said they loved it. Some said you know like the contrast was difficult. So she added lines on the red. Uh, and eventually, she came up with something that um, that people love. And now in Los Angeles, in Brisbane, and New Haven, and other cities. They are actually introducing this as actual, um, you know, the city is actually introducing this and changing their parking signs to to this much more improved parking schedule sign. And so it's such a one, I, think, I just love this example, because it's such a uh, wonderful example of taking things into your hands, finding something that's harming people and doing something about it. And it's such a, you know, inspiring thing to me. But uh, outside from that, I think as far as groups go, 
Um, there's also, you know, the people who are doing government design, I have a lot of respect for here in the US, we have uh, groups called 18F or the G- digital service who um, are giving up, you know, really nice, amazing, high paying jobs in tech to go help people through the government. Uh, and mm-hmm. there's a lot of ways, you know, there's a lot of bad examples in the book about government, uh, <laughs> because they have such a big impact on people's lives and making sure that um, they're taken care of. And so it's also an equal opportunity to improve. That's awesome. Jonathan, thank you so much for making time today. It was really my pleasure. Oh, thank you so much, Mary. Thank you for listening. You can reach Jonathan on Twitter at DesignUXUI. You can subscribe to the O'Reilly Design Podcast through iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or SoundCloud. And be sure to leave a review while you're there. <laughs>